Book One, Chapter Nine of The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Bologna Times. In Miss Peniston's youth, fashion had returned to town in October. Therefore, on the tenth day of the month, the blinds of her Fifth Avenue residence were drawn up, and the eyes of the dying gladiator in bronze. Who occupied the drawing-room window resumed their survey of that deserted thoroughfare. The first two weeks after her return represented to Mrs. Peniston the domestic equivalent of a religious retreat. She went through the linen and blankets in the precise spirit of the penitent, exploring the inner folds of conscience. She sought for moths as the stricken soul seeks for lurking infirmities. The topmost shelf of every closet was made to yield up its secret. Cellar and coal bin were probed to their darkest depths, and, as a final stage in the lustral rites, the entire house was swathed in penitential white and deluged with expiatory soapsuds. It was on this phase of the proceedings that Miss Bart entered on the afternoon of her return from the Van Osburgh wedding. The journey back to town had not been calculated to soothe her nerves, though Evie Van Osburgh's engagement was still officially a secret. It was one of which the innumerable intimate friends of the family were already possessed, and the trainful of returning guests buzzed with illusions and anticipations. Lily was acutely aware of her own part in this drama of innuendo. She knew the exact quality of the amusement the situation evoked. The crude forms in which her friends took their pleasure included a loud enjoyment of such complications, the zest of surprising destiny in the act of playing a practical joke. Lily knew well enough how to bear herself in difficult situations. She had, to a shade, the exact manner between victory and defeat. Every insinuation was shed without an effort by the bright indifference of her manner, but she was beginning to feel the strain of the attitude. The reaction was more rapid, and she lapsed to a deeper self-disgust, as was always the case with her. This moral repulsion found a physical outlet in a quickened distaste for her surroundings. She revolted from the complacent ugliness of Mrs. Peniston's black walnut. From the slippery gloss of the vestibule tiles, and the mingled odor of sapolio and furniture polish that met her at the door, the stairs were still carpetless. And on the way up to her room, she was arrested on the landing by an encroaching tide of soapsuds. Gathering up her skirts, she drew aside with an impatient gesture, and as she did so, she had the odd sensation of. Having already found herself in the same situation, but in different surroundings, it seemed to her that she was again descending the staircase from Selden's rooms and looking down to remonstrate with the dispenser of the soapy flood. She found herself met by a lifted stare, which had once before confronted her under similar circumstances. It was the charwoman of the Benedict who, resting on crimson elbows. Examined her with the same unflinching curiosity, the same apparent reluctance to let her pass. On this occasion, however, Miss Bart was on her own ground. 
Don't you see that I wish to go by? Please move your pail, she said sharply. The woman at first seemed not to hear her. Then, without a word of excuse, she pushed back her pail and dragged a wet floor cloth across the landing, keeping her eyes fixed on Lily while the latter swept by. It was insufferable that Mrs. Peniston should have such creatures about the house, and Lily entered her room, resolved that the woman should be dismissed that evening. Mrs. Peniston, however, was at the moment inaccessible to remonstrance. Since early morning she had been shut up with her maid, going over her furs, a process which formed the culminating episode in the drama of household renovation. In the evening, also, Lily found herself alone, for her aunt, who rarely dined out, had responded to the summons of a Van Alstyne cousin who was passing through town. The house, in its state of unnatural immaculateness and order, was as dreary as a tomb, and Lily, turning from her brief repast between shrouded sideboards, wandered into the newly uncovered glare of the drawing-room. She felt as though she were buried alive in the stifling limits of Mrs. Peniston's existence. She usually contrived to avoid being at home during the season of domestic renewal. On the present occasion, however, a variety of reasons had combined to bring her to town, and foremost among them was the fact that she had fewer invitations than usual for the autumn. She had so long been accustomed to pass from one country house to another, till the close of the holidays brought her friends to town, that the unfilled gaps of time confronting her produced a sharp sense of waning popularity. It was as she had said to Selden, people were tired of her. They would welcome her in a new character, but as Miss Bart, they knew her by heart. She knew herself by heart, too, and was sick of the old story. There were moments when she longed blindly for anything different, anything strange, remote, and untried, but the utmost reach of her imagination did not go beyond picturing her usual life in a new setting. She could not figure herself as anywhere but in a drawing-room, diffusing elegance as a flower sheds perfume. Meanwhile, as October advanced, she had to face the alternative of returning to the Trenners or joining her aunt in town. Even the desolating dullness of New York in October and the soapy discomforts of Mrs. Peniston's interior seemed preferable to what might await her at Bellomont and with an air of heroic devotion she announced her intention of remaining with her aunt till the holidays. Sacrifices of this nature are sometimes received with feelings as mixed as those which actuate them, and Mrs. Pennison remarked to her confidential maid that, if any of the family were to be with her at such a crisis, though for forty years she had been thought competent to see to the hanging of her own curtains, she would certainly have preferred Miss Grace to Miss Lily. Grace Stepney was an obscure cousin, of adaptable manners and vicarious interests, who ran in to sit with Mrs. Peniston when Lily dined out too continuously, who played bezique, picked up dropped stitches, read out the deaths from the times, and sincerely admired the purple satin drawing-room curtains, 
the dying gladiator in the window, and the seven-by-five painting of Niagara, which represented the one artistic excess of Mr. Peniston's temperate career. Mrs. Peniston, under ordinary circumstances, was as much bored by her excellent cousin as the recipient of such services usually is by the person who performs them. She greatly preferred the brilliant and unreliable Lily, who did not know one end of a crochet needle from the other, and had frequently wounded her susceptibilities by suggesting that the drawing-room should be done over. But when it came to hunting for missing napkins, or helping to decide whether the back stairs needed recarpeting, Grace's judgment was certainly sounder than Lily's. Not to mention the fact that the latter resented the smell of beeswax and brown soap, and behaved as though she thought a house ought to keep clean of itself, without extraneous assistance. Seated under the cheerless blaze of the drawing-room chandelier, Mrs. Peniston never lit the lamps unless there was company. Lily seemed to watch her own figure retreating down vistas of neutral-tinted dullness to a middle age like Grace Stepney's. When she ceased to amuse Judy Trenor and her friends, she would have to fall back on amusing Mrs. Peniston. Whichever way she looked, she saw only a future of servitude to the whims of others, never the possibility of asserting her own eager individuality. A ring at the doorbell, sounding emphatically through the empty house, roused her suddenly to the extent of her boredom. It was as though all the weariness of the past months had culminated in the vacuity of that interminable evening. If only the ring meant a summons from the outer world, a token that she was still remembered and wanted. After some delay, a parlor-maid presented herself with the announcement that there was a person outside who was asking to see Miss Bart, and on Lily's pressing for a more specific description, she added, "'It's Mrs. Haffin, Miss. She won't say what she wants.' Lily, to whom the name conveyed nothing, opened the door upon a woman in a battered bonnet, who stood firmly planted under the hall light. The glare of the unshaded gas shone familiarly on her pock-marked face and the reddish baldness visible through thin strands of straw-colored hair. Lily looked at the charwoman in surprise. "'Do you wish to see me?' she asked. "'I should like to say a word to you, miss.' The tone was neither aggressive nor conciliatory. It revealed nothing of the speaker's errand. Nevertheless, some precautionary instinct warned Lily to withdraw beyond earshot of the hovering parlor-maid. She signed to Mrs. Haffin to follow her into the drawing-room and closed the door when they had entered. "'What is it that you wish?' she inquired. The charwoman, after the manner of her kind, stood with her arms folded in her shawl. Unwinding the ladder, she produced a small parcel wrapped in dirty newspaper. "'I have something here that you might like to see, Miss Bart.' She spoke the name with an unpleasant emphasis, as though her knowing it made a part of her reason for being there. To Lily the intonation sounded like a threat. "'You have found something belonging to me?' she asked, extending her hand. Mrs. Haffin drew back. "'Well, if it comes to that, I guess it's mine as much as anybody's,' she returned. Lily looked at her perplexedly. She was sure, now, that her visitor's manner 
conveyed a threat, but expert as she was in certain directions, there was nothing in her experience to prepare her for the exact significance of the present scene. She felt, however, that it must be ended as promptly as possible. I don't understand. If this parcel is not mine, why have you asked for me? The woman was abashed by the question. She was evidently prepared to answer it, but like all her class, she had to go a long way back to make a beginning, and it was only after a pause that she replied, My husband was janitor to the Benedict till the first of the month. Since then he can't get nothing to do. Lily remained silent, and she continued. It wasn't no fault of our own, neither. The agent had another man he wanted the place for, and we was put out, bag and baggage, just to suit his fancy. I had a long sickness last winter, and an operation that ate up all we'd put by, and it's hard for me and the children, huffin' being so long out of a job. After all, then, she had come only to ask Miss Bart to find a place for her husband, or, more probably, to seek the young lady's intervention with Mrs. Peniston. Lily had such an air of always getting what she wanted, that she was used to being appealed to as an intermediary, and, relieved of her vague apprehension, she took refuge in the conventional formula. "'I am sorry you have been in trouble,' she said. "'Oh, that we have, miss, and it's only just beginning. If only we'd a got a another situation, but the agent, he's dead against us, and it, it ain't no fault of ours, neither, but... At this point, Lily's impatience overcame her. If you have anything to say to me, she interposed. The woman's resentment of the rebuff seemed to spur her lagging ideas. Yes, miss, I'm coming to that, she said. She paused again with her eyes on Lily, and then continued in a tone of diffuse narrative. When we was at the Benedict, I had charge of some of the gentlemen's rooms. Leastwise, I swept em out on Saturdays. Some of the gentlemen got the greatest sight of letters. I never saw the like of it. Their waste-paper baskets would be fairly brimming, and papers falling all over on the floor. Maybe having so many is how they get so careless. Some of them is worse than others. Mr. Selden, Mr. Lawrence Selden, he was always one of the carefulest, burnt his letters in winter, and tore em in little bits in summer. But sometimes he'd have so many, he'd just bunch em together, the way the others did and tear the lot through once, like this. While she spoke, she had loosened the string from the parcel in her hand, and now she drew forth a letter which she laid on the table between Miss Bart and herself. As she had said, the letter was torn in two, but with a rapid gesture she had laid the torn edges together and smoothed out the page. A wave of indignation swept over Lily. She felt herself in the presence of something vile, and yet but dimly conjectured, the kind of vileness of which people whispered, but which she had never thought of as touching her own life. She drew back with a motion of disgust, but her withdrawal was checked by a sudden discovery. Under the glare of Mrs. Peniston's chandelier, she had recognized the handwriting of the letter. It was a large, disjointed hand, with a flourish of masculinity which but slightly disguised its rambling weakness, and the words, scrawled in heavy ink on pale-tinted note-paper, smote on Lily's ear as though she had heard them spoken. 
At first she did not grasp the full import of the situation. She understood only that before her lay a letter written by Bertha Dorset, and addressed, presumably, to Lawrence Selden. There was no date, but the blackness of the ink proved the writing to be comparatively recent. The packet in Mrs. Haffin's hand, doubtless, contained more letters of the same kind. A dozen, Lily conjectured from its thickness. The letter before her was short, but its few words, which had leapt into her brain before she was conscious of reading them, told a long history, a history over which, for the last four years, the friends of the writer had smiled and shrugged, viewing it merely as one among the countless good situations of the mundane comedy. Now the other side presented itself to Lily, the volcanic nether side of the surface, over which conjecture and innuendo glide so lightly, till the first fissure turns their whisper to a shriek. Lily knew that there is nothing society resents so much as having given its protection to those who have not known how to profit by it. It is for having betrayed its connivance that the body social punishes the offender who was found out. And in this case there was no doubt of the issue. The code of Lily's world decreed that a woman's husband should be the only judge of her conduct. She was technically above suspicion while she had the shelter of his approval, or even of his indifference. But with a man of George Dorset's temper, there could be no thought of condemnation. The possessor of his wife's letters could overthrow with a touch the whole structure of her existence. And into what hands Bertha Dorset's secret had been delivered? For a moment the irony of the coincidence tinged Lily's disgust with the confused sense of triumph. But the disgust prevailed. All her instinctive resistances, of taste, of training, of blind inherited scruples, rose against the other feeling. Her strongest sense was one of personal contamination. She moved away, as though to put as much distance as possible between herself and her visitor. I know nothing of these letters, she said. I have no idea why you have brought them here. Mrs. Haffin faced her steadily. I'll tell you why, miss. I brought em to you to sell, because I ain't got no other way of raising money, and if we don't pay our rent by tomorrow night, we'll be put out. I never done anything of the kind before, and if you'd speak to Mr. Selden or to Mr. Rosedale about getting Haffin taken on again at the Benedict, I seen you talking to Mr. Rosedale on the steps that day you come out of Mr. Selden's rooms. The blood rushed to Lily's forehead. She understood now. Mrs. Haffin supposed her to be the writer of the letters. In the first leap of her anger she was about to ring and order the woman out, but an obscure impulse restrained her. The mention of Selden's name had started a new train of thought. Bertha Dorset's letters were nothing to her. They might go where the current of chance carried them. But Selden was inextricably involved in their fate. Men do not, at worst, suffer much from such exposure, and in this instance the flash of divination which had carried the meaning of the letters to Lily's brain had revealed also that they were appeals, repeated and therefore probably unanswered, for the renewal of a tie which time had evidently relaxed. Nevertheless, the fact that the correspondence had been allowed to fall into strange hands would convict Selden of negligence 
in a matter where the world holds it least pardonable, and there were graver risks to consider where a man of Dorset's ticklish balance was concerned. If she weighed all these things, it was unconsciously. She was aware only of a feeling that Selden would wish the letters rescued, and that, therefore, she must obtain possession of them. Beyond that, her mind did not travel. She had, indeed, a quick vision of returning the packet to Bertha Dorset, and of the opportunities the restitution offered. But this thought lit up abysses from which she shrank back, ashamed. Meanwhile, Mrs. Haffen, prompt to perceive her hesitation, had already opened the packet and ranged its contents on the table. All the letters had been placed together with strips of thin paper. Some were in small fragments, the others merely torn in half. Though there were not many, thus spread out, they nearly covered the table. Lily's glance fell on a word here and there. Then she said in a low voice, What do you wish me to pay you? Mrs. Haffin's face reddened with satisfaction. It was clear that the young lady was badly frightened, and Mrs. Haffin was the woman to make the most of such fears. Anticipating an easier victory than she had foreseen, she named an exorbitant sum, but Miss Bart showed herself a less ready prey than might have been expected from her imprudent opening. She refused to pay the price named, and, after a moment's hesitation, met it by a counter-offer of half the amount. Mrs. Haffin immediately stiffened. Her hands traveled toward the outspread letters, and folding them slowly, she made as though to restore them to their wrapping. I guess they're worth more to you than to me, miss, but the poor has got to live as well as the rich, she observed sententiously. Lily was throbbing with fear, but the insinuation fortified her resistance. You are mistaken, she said indifferently. I have offered all I am willing to give for the letters, but there may be other ways of getting them. Mrs. Haffin raised a suspicious glance. She was too experienced not to know that the traffic she was engaged in had perils as great as its rewards, and she had a vision of the elaborate machinery of revenge which a word of this commanding young lady's might set in motion. She applied the corner of her shawl to her eyes, and murmured through it that no good came of bearing too hard on the poor, but that for her part she had never been mixed up in such a business before, and that on her honor as a Christian all she and Haffin had thought of was that the letters mustn't go any farther. Lily stood motionless, keeping between herself and the charwoman the greatest distance compatible with the need of speaking in low tones. The idea of bargaining for the letters was intolerable to her, but she knew that, if she appeared to weaken, Mrs. Haffin would at once increase her original demand. She could never afterward recall how long the duel lasted, or what was the decisive stroke, which finally, after a lapse of time recorded in minutes by the clock, in hours by the precipitate beat of her pulses, put her in possession of the letters. She knew only that the door had finally closed, and that she stood alone with a packet in her hand. She had no idea of reading the letters. Even to unfold Mrs. Haffin's dirty newspaper would have seemed degrading. But what did she intend to do with its contents? 
The recipient of the letters had meant to destroy them, and it was her duty to carry out his intention. She had no right to keep them. To do so was to lessen whatever merit lay in having secured their possession. But how destroy them so effectually that there should be no second risk of their falling in such hands? Mrs. Peniston's icy drawing-room grate shone with a forbidding luster. The fire, like the lamps, was never lit except when there was company. Miss Bart was turning to carry the letters upstairs when she heard the opening of the outer door, and her aunt entered the drawing-room. Mrs. Peniston was a small, plump woman, with a colorless skin lined with trivial wrinkles. Her gray hair was arranged with precision, and her clothes looked excessively new, and yet slightly old-fashioned. They were always black and tightly fitting, with an expensive glitter. She was the kind of woman who wore jet at breakfast. Lily had never seen her when she was not cuirassed in shining black, with small tight boots, and an air of being packed and ready to start, yet she never started. She looked around the dressing-room with an expression of minute scrutiny. I saw a streak of light under one of the blinds as I drove up. It's extraordinary that I can never teach that woman to draw them down evenly. Having corrected the irregularity, she seated herself on one of the glossy purple armchairs. Mrs. Peniston always sat on a chair, never in it. Then she turned her glance to Miss Bart. My dear, you look tired. I suppose it's the excitement of the wedding. Cornelia van Alstein was full of it. Molly was there, and Gertie Farish ran in for a moment to tell us about it. I think it was odd. They're serving melons before the consomme. A wedding breakfast should always begin with consomme. Molly didn't care for the bridesmaids' dresses. She had it straight from Julia Melson that they cost three hundred dollars apiece at Celeste's, but she says they didn't look it. I'm glad you decided not to be a bridesmaid. That shade of salmon pink wouldn't have suited you. Mrs. Peniston delighted in discussing the minutest details of festivities in which she had not taken part. Nothing would have induced her to undergo the exertion and fatigue of attending the Van Osburgh wedding. But so great was her interest in the event that, having heard two versions of it, she now prepared to extract a third from her niece. Lily, however, had been deplorably careless in noting the particulars of the entertainment. She had failed to observe the color of Mrs. Van Osburgh's gown, and could not even say whether the old Van Osburgh Severs had been used at the bride's table. Mrs. Peniston, in short, found that she was of more service as a listener than as a narrator. Really, Lily, I don't see why you took the trouble to go to the wedding, if you don't remember what happened or whom you saw there. When I was a girl, I used to keep the menu of every dinner I went to, and write the names of the people on the back, and I never threw away my cotillion favors till after your uncle's death, when it seemed unsuitable to have so many colored things about the house. I had a whole closet full. I remember, and I can tell to this day what balls I got them at. Molly Van Alstein reminds me of what I was at that age. It's wonderful how she notices. She was able to tell her mother exactly how the wedding dress was cut, and we knew at once, from the fold in the back, 
that it must have come from Paquin. Mrs. Pennison rose abruptly, and, advancing to the ormolu clock, surmounted by a helmeted Minerva, which throned on the chimney-piece between two malachite vases, passed her lace handkerchief between the helmet and its visor. "'I knew it! The parlour-maid never dusts there!' she exclaimed, triumphantly displaying a minute spot on the handkerchief. Then, reseating herself, she went on. "'Molly thought Mrs. Dorset the best-dressed woman at the wedding. I've no doubt her dress did cost more than any one else's, but I can't quite like the idea. A combination of sable and point de melange. It seems she goes to a new man in Paris, who won't take an order till his client has spent a day with him at his villa at Neuilly. He says he must study his subject's home life. A most peculiar arrangement, I should say. But Mrs. Dorset told Molly about it herself. She said the villa was full of the most exquisite things, and she was really sorry to leave. Molly said she never saw her looking better. She was in tremendous spirits, and said she had made a match between Evie Van Osburgh and Percy Grice. She really seems to have a very good influence on young men. I hear she is interesting herself now in that silly Silverton boy who had had his head turned by Carrie Fisher, and has been gambling so dreadfully. Well, as I was saying, Evie is really engaged. Mrs. Dorset had her to stay with Percy Grice, and managed it all, and Grace Van Osburgh is in the seventh heaven. She had almost despaired of marrying Evie. Mrs. Peniston again paused, but this time her scrutiny addressed itself not to the furniture, but to her niece. Cornelia Van Alstyne was so surprised. She had heard that you were to marry young Grice. She saw the Wetheralls just after they had stopped with you at Ballamont, and Alice Wetherall was quite sure there was an engagement. She said that when Mr. Grice left unexpectedly one morning, they all thought he had rushed to town for the ring. Lily rose and moved toward the door. "'I believe I am tired. I think I will go to bed,' she said. And Mrs. Peniston, suddenly distracted by the discovery that the easel sustaining the late Mr. Peniston's crayon portrait was not exactly in line with the sofa in front of it, presented an absent-minded brow to her kiss. In her own room, Lily turned up the gas-jet and glanced toward the grate. It was as brilliantly polished as the one below, but here at least she could burn a few papers with less risk of incurring her aunt's disapproval. She made no immediate motion to do so, however, but, dropping into a chair, looking wearily about her, her room was large and comfortably furnished. It was the envy and admiration of poor Grace Stepney, who boarded, but, contrasted with the first tents and luxurious appointments of the guest-rooms, where so many weeks of Lily's existence were spent, it seemed as dreary as a prison. The monumental wardrobe and bedstead of black walnut had migrated from Mr. Peniston's bedroom, and the magenta flock wallpaper of a pattern dear to the early sixties was hung with large steel engravings of anecdotic character. Lily had tried to mitigate this charmless background by a few frivolous touches, in the shape of a lace-decked toilet-table, 
and a little painted desk surmounted by photographs. But the futility of the attempt struck her as she looked about the room. What a contrast to the subtle elegance of the setting she had pictured for herself, an apartment which should surpass the complicated luxury of her friend's surroundings by the whole extent of that artistic sensibility which made her feel herself their superior, in which every tint and line should combine to enhance her beauty and give distinction to her leisure. Once more the haunting sense of physical ugliness was intensified by her mental depression, so that each piece of the offending furniture seemed to thrust forth its most aggressive angle. Her aunt's words had told her nothing new, but they had revived the vision of Bertha Dorset, smiling, flattered, victorious, holding her up to ridicule by insinuations intelligible to every member of their little group. The thought of the ridicule struck deeper than any other sensation. Lily knew every turn of the elusive jargon which could flay its victims without the shedding of blood. Her cheek burned at the recollection, and she rose and caught up the letters. She no longer meant to destroy them. That intention had been effaced by the quick corrosion of Mrs. Peniston's words. Instead, she approached her desk, and, lighting a taper, tied and sealed the packet. Then she opened the wardrobe, drew out a dispatch-box, and deposited the letters within it. As she did so, it struck her with a flash of irony that she was indebted to Gus Trainer for the means of buying them. End of Book One, Chapter Nine